We've opened up the door into the social media listening lab. Uh-huh. What are we seeing? What are we hearing? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the center is listening to the world. We've got new social media platforms hitting the app store on a weekly basis. And it's so much noise. Welcome to The Outfall. This is Robert. Today, David, Amy, and I learn an unexpected secret in crisis communication. We learn how organizations can become more resilient. We also dive into social media and discuss a life-changing book that we can't wait to share with y'all. You know, we're having fun creating these series of episodes we've nicknamed Dispatches from Our Bunkers. Our guest today is the wonderful Dr. Andrew Pyle, who's an associate professor at Clemson in the communication department. His interests include risk, crisis communication, and social media. As you'll see, he has a large playground to play in, and he has something you and I don't have, a social media listening lab. That's right. Sounds cool, right? Enjoy. You know, are there certain themes that you found or discovered through your research that you didn't think about that, you know, successful organizations have been able to navigate crisis that you're like, huh, I'm, I'm starting to see something that I, I didn't know about before? That's a great question. I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is this, this tension between what might be most effective communication and what the legal department is telling us we need to do. <laughs> so there's, there's all this anecdotal evidence and all of these cases that have shown over, over decades of research that the organizations that come out quickly and, and take some level of ownership for, for a crisis and say, you know what? Um, you know, we screwed up here. Or even, we're not quite sure what happened yet, but we're going to do what we need to make it right. You know, not even actually saying we're sorry necessarily, but accepting some amount of, some amount of ownership for an event and then working through that as opposed to this hard stance that we're not going to say anything that could be misconstrued as though we might be at fault. I'll give you a specific example of that. Right after the Exxon Valdez went down, you know, so that was, that was 89. Uh, a year later, there was an oil spill off the coast of Huntington Beach, California. It was, a, it was a BP oil tanker. The CEO of BP America flew to, the, flew to the site and had a press conference. And he opened his press conference with, our lawyers are telling us that this is not our fault, but we're going to treat it as though it is, and we are going to make this right. Hmm. Wow. And no one remembers that that spill happened their mm-hmm. their stock increased after that event it was a non-issue and the communication scholars looking at that would would argue that it is in large part because of how they began that response and so i would say that 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 tension between what feels like the best option because there's there's the, these potential legal ramifications if we say anything that could be misconstrued as responsibility whereas people just People want to feel heard and, and understood and valued. And people who are affected want to know that somebody cares, that somebody is going to try to make this right. And that level of, of empathy and that level of transparency and, and demonstrating some understanding is so powerful. 
but before I started studying this, I would have, I would have thought, no, you know, you know, don't, don't say I'm sorry because then <laughs> it's your fault. And that really just doesn't seem to be the case most of the time. Wow. What mm-hmm. does resilience mean to you as far as organizations that are in crisis? That's uh, that's also a messy question. Resilient organizations from a crisis communication perspective are ones that have done their due diligence ahead of time to build healthy relationships with their stakeholders. So they have developed a reservoir of goodwill. They have they have built trust. And when something does go wrong, uh, their stakeholders will wait. They will be patient. They will look to see what's going to happen. Trusting that organizational leadership and that organizational values are such that uh, that the organization is going to to do what will be best for its people and not not just look for the bottom line necessarily. Uh, and so resilience is doing the work ahead of time and building the relationships ahead of time so that the organization has the time it needs and the capital it needs. I mean, social capital as well as actual capital to be able to make it through not just to survive a crisis, but to truly achieve renewal and, and, and build some kind of new normal on the other side. Wow, oh, that's great. We've opened up the door into the social media listening lab. Uh-huh. What are we seeing? What are we hearing? Well, I'll tell you. Dramatic pause. I tried to I tried so hard to just keep a straight face on that. Okay. <laughs> so the social media listening center, the physical space is uh, it's a little bit uh, Spartan, honestly, you walk in and there's some tables with TVs set up so that you can have these floating workstations for students to be able to gather and, and uh, pick apart a data set together and be able to, to collaborate on projects. There's a long conference table and then there's a command center wall and it's these giant TVs put up together to have these this whole wall of screens. And on that, you have a word cloud, you have a sentiment analysis, you have a constellation of topics and what's getting the most conversation right now and whatever you're searching for. And then you have this screen of top influencers. Who is leading the conversation right now? And so on a typical day, those screens are focused on Clemson athletics, Clemson academics, and that's just sort of the default. But that space is being used all the time for teaching and for research. And so if you wander in on a, on a random day when there's been a class, it might be something about a political race that's happening because we have students doing in-depth analytics on commentary on social media about a, a particular political campaign. We had a student do an independent study last year on Beto on his campaign and what the conversation was like and how he had been able to leverage just incredible levels of conversation about his campaign with a minuscule budget compared to what uh, Ted Cruz was doing. And so that was one thing you would see if you went in there on a particular day. And tracking political conversations is a big part of what has happened in there in the past. Who is the center listening to? Is this everyone on campus? That's a great question. Or is this anyone associated with campus or has some Clemson link? Uh, No, the center is listening to the world. So anything that is publicly available on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter uh, or news outlets or blogs or 
the comment boards for any of those. If it is publicly available data, so for example, if you have a Twitter account and you don't have it marked as private, then we can pick up those tweets. Hmm. Um, now, if someone has... So the outfall will be trending, I presume. Oh, well, yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, top influencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it is. Um, so if somebody has privacy settings of any kind, then then we're not then we're not getting their data. So during Hurricane Florence, um, I worked with um, a couple of interns and I actually I was teaching a course in crisis communication at the time. And so all of my students were also involved in this. We went to the social media listening center and class happened in there. And so what we were doing when Hurricane Florence was was building and hadn't made landfall yet, we were going into Facebook groups. So students were doing this manually, going into Facebook groups. We were looking at Reddit. We were looking at Snapchat. We were looking at Instagram. We were looking at Twitter. And on one side, we were trying to do rumor control. So there's all this misinformation. There's all these trolls, you know, accounts that are just trying to, you know, add noise or, or, or spread disinformation or just be stupid. And so we were looking for that, but we also had groups going into these, these Facebook groups that were forming. There were 43 Facebook groups that, that formed in the Carolinas that we found that were groups saying, Hey, you know, if you're worried about the storm, if you're worrying, thinking about evacuation, if you need resources, you know, all these things. And it was, it was groups of, okay, anyone in the PD region, you know, people who are in Columbia, people who are in Charleston, people who are in Clemson, people who are in the upstate. And so you'd have a group with 200 people in it. And, and, and the people, are like, oh, wow, 200 people, this is a huge group. That's a tiny group. It's a really small network. And so we had all of these groups and each group was sharing information with each other and not getting these outside sources. So our students would go in and would connect um, the people in those groups with the emergency management division, with these, these entities that had information about the storm, information that was a, a much better legitimate source of information than what my, you know, what my cousin uh, was posting on Facebook and, 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 you know, he heard it from his friend Billy and, you know, so. It's like you're building communication bridges, right? Into these different silos. Absolutely what the, what the purpose of that project was. Interesting. And we were able to, boost signal we were able to uh, to to get um, official messages from the emergency management division and other official entities to an additional two million uh, Carolina residents Wow um, and that's, do you think you save lives through that I, I there's no way to I, I can't say that right I, there's no way to know but um, you'd like to think that that was a positive outcome. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would love to think that someone made made better safety choices, right? Or mm-hmm. someone was was able to get access to resources. Andrew, you're kind of blowing my mind here a little bit. You know, <laughs> you, well, it doesn't take much, Andrew. But uh, <laughs> hey, you're a certified well, I squatter. I more passive. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, it's very active. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of what we do is passive. We, we all of the political conversations that we follow, it's passive analysis, right? We're just looking at what the conversations were, but the crisis research that we do, it is active because we do want to be making a difference. We want to be finding ways where we can help uh, improve the lives of the, of the people who we're, we're working for and with. 
So in, in the Hurricane Florence situation, we were working for Carolina residents. In the last couple of months, we've been working both with the University Emergency Operations Center and with the State Emergency Management Division on some similar things, on rumor control, on, on, on trying to help uh, cut down on, on misinformation. So we're doing similar kinds of, of, of tracking. You know, we have these different keyword searches and we're looking for conversations around anything from, um, anything from, you know, people not being able to find resources in the grocery store to, you know, people talking about access to PPEs and masks and stuff. So. Can you give us an example of what that looks like? Say someone's looking for a particular resource or their information or something uh, physical? Yeah. Um, so let me think. So there was an example early on right after, right after places in the U.S. were starting to shut down. There was an apartment complex in the Columbia area that had sent out this notice to all of, it, all of the residents that said, you're going to have to pay X number of months rent uh, in advance or we're going to evict you uh, because oh, people are going to start you know, not having income and we're going to get our money. So we, we detected that. Other, other entities also had detected that. And so we don't know if, if we were the first to notify state level actors, but we do know that that report ended up on the governor's desk. And wow. it was part of the it was part of the executive order was emphasizing the illegality of of those kinds of behaviors. Where do you see all this going? I wish I knew. I mean, it's it's astounding how quickly these these technologies continue to evolve. So we've got we've got new social media platforms hitting the app store on a weekly basis. And it's so much noise. And then every, every so often, one of them picks up steam and takes off. And, and then, you know, the people that developed that particular app get bought out by Facebook or they get bought out by, um, you know, one of these other companies and, and that they have a great payday. But, you know, look, look at something like TikTok. It was just one of many video platforms. And now it's, now, now it's all my students look at is is TikTok. I don't have TikTok. I don't trust myself with that. Um, <laughs> but it's I, I think what we will continue to see are new apps that push harder and harder to find ways to capture our attention and keep it. Because if you're looking at someone's app, then they're making money. There's a really, really good book that that talks about a lot of these issues. And the kinds of things that what is um, <laughs> I'm waiting. It's called Digital Minimalism by Kevin. Oh, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> what? Robert read the book, loved it. He passed it on to me. I read it. Absolutely love it. And it's personally, I think it's revolutionized my life. I think it's brought a lot more meaning to okay. my interactions. All right, guys. Have you read his book, Deep Work? Yes, love it. Not yet. Okay, I taught a class on Deep Work. Get out! I actually have I, the, the, uh, your webpage up right now. <laughs> honestly, Deep Work, reading that three, four years ago for the first time, I think was the difference between me maybe not getting tenure and Ooh. getting on track to, to kind of get things figured wow. out with work-life balance. 
Um, wow. that, that's testimony there. It was huge. I mean, it, it revolutionized the way I approached my work. So can I just make the point or the observation, though, that deep work and social media listening just seem completely opposite <laughs> to they each are. other? They are <laughs> totally diametrically opposed, which is why <laughs> I no longer have a personal Facebook page. Wow. Um, I, I have really strict rules on when and how I'm, I'm allowed to use social media outside of my research because I was burning up hours on social media and it's because it is, it, it is addictive. It is designed to make you spend more time there. So now I don't like, I don't have notifications on my phone and I don't like, I guess in the interest of transparency, uh, when, when everything started with COVID and I started doing really intensive social media tracking for two different groups, a lot of my deep work stuff went out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. last last month and a half has been pretty rough for my deep work. You're absolutely right. It, they, they don't go together. And it, it is so much harder to rebuild the deep work habit than it is to fall off the wagon and go back into social media land. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun. <laughs> Y'all are fun people. Thanks again to Andrew for talking with us. If you want to see a picture of the Social Media Listening Lab, go to our show notes on our website. Also, thank you for listening to The Outfall. We've got some great shows coming up in the pipeline that we can't wait to share with you. Do you have a good story idea for us? Do you want to be on the show? Go to our website, theoutfall.com, and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. 